Welcome to a special series on the Acquisition Talk podcast that gives you an audiobook tour of my research project titled Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to I'm Eric Lofgren of the Baroni Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. You can find this book for free and over 1,300 blog posts on my website, acquisitiontalk.com. In this chapter of Program to Fail, we dive into how complex order in the real world emerges from simple and iterative systems of nonlinear interactions. The umbrella term of complex adaptive systems is used to describe self-organizing systems of emergent order that adapt to an uncertain environment. While these properties are not in general desirable for weapon systems that humans use in the field, they are certainly desirable properties of the defense acquisition system as much as they are for market economies. In this chapter, we trace John Boyd's work from weapon systems design into complexity theory that leverages Gödel's incompleteness theorem, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and the second law of thermodynamics. We find that the only realistic way to generate a system that exhibits complex behaviors beyond the foresight of any individual is to build from the bottom up according to simple rules. Tacit coordination based on local conditions can then give rise to emergent order, a process not appreciated by advocates of top-down planning of the planning, programming, budgeting system. While complexity theories have started to penetrate the philosophy of military operations, we are still at the early stages of appreciating these ideas in the world of defense acquisition. Describing the process of innovation as a nonlinear interaction between technology push and requirements pull is but one framing of a larger philosophical question. What are the foundations and methods of scientific inquiry? Two general processes are first, starting from a comprehensive whole and breaking it down into its particulars, and second, starting with the particulars and building towards a comprehensive whole. On the one hand, Requirements pull proceeds from the general to the specific and is related to reason, deduction, analysis, and differentiation. For example, the requirement for air superiority is a general concept that can be expressed in many arrangements of particular technologies, the selection of which depends, in part, on the attitudes and culture of the decision maker. Do we want a small number of stealth aircraft, a large number of unmanned vehicles, or collaborative manned-unmanned teaming, or something else. On the other hand, technology push proceeds from the specific to the general and is related to empirics, induction, synthesis, and integration. For example, independent technologies such as the jet engine, airframe structures, electronics, and ordnance can be integrated into a system that expresses the air superiority concept. The inductive progression builds to the concept by relating observed elements. Though an interplay between deductive and inductive methods was considered perhaps as long ago as Aristotle, 
It continued to be debated into the 20th century. Alfred North Whitehead described the difference between the two, arguing that the natural sciences were not a rigid method of induction alone, as Francis Bacon believed. Science also required the deductive reasoning from mathematics to verify the internal consistency of the conceptual system. As Whitehead wrote, quote, What Bacon omitted was the play of free imagination controlled by the requirements of coherence and logic. The true method of discovery is like the flight of an aeroplane. It starts from the ground of a particular observation, it makes a flight into the thin air of imaginative generalization, and it again lands for renewed observation rendered acute by the rational interpretation. End quote. Structuring ideas from observations, followed by an unstructuring, restructuring, and restructuring again, is the basic method of learning. By contrast, the systems analysis approach expressed in the Department of Defense is totally deductive in nature. Indeed, the very term, systems analysis, invokes deductive as opposed to inductive methods. As Aaron Woldovsky explained, quote, Rather than waiting upon experience in the real world, the systems analyst tries various moves in his model and runs through them to see if they work. End quote. Systems analyses sprang out of operations research in World War II, which generally had well-defined objectives amenable to mathematical tools such as linear programming and queuing theory. While the objectives were given and assumptions about the environment specified in operations research, Alan Enthoven and others explained that the major task of the systems analyst was defining objectives and assumptions. E.S. Quaid observed that systems analysts are, quote, likely to be forced to deal with problems in which difficulty lies in deciding what ought to be done and not simply how to do it. The situation is not like an empirical science, which starts with observed facts, but more like that of mathematics, where the result takes any validity they might have in the real world from the assumptions. It is important that the assumptions be the right assumptions." End quote. Quaid clearly expressed the deductive methods of systems analysis and contrasted it to empiricism. Nevertheless, Quaid could not put systems analysis on the firm foundations of reason because judgment and intuition permeate the models, particularly when framing the goals and assumptions. It is no surprise, then, that systems analysts largely defended weapons requirements rather than the feasibility of certain technologies. Though critics appreciated the logic and rigor inherent to systems analysis, they repeatedly pointed to disconnects from empiricism, from the knowledge gained by trying things out. James Schlesinger explained how, quote, Our ability to formulate models depends on our knowledge of the mechanics of the real world, end quote. Admiral Rickover complained how systems analysts, quote, have little or no scientific training or technical expertise. Their studies are, in general, abstractions. They read more like the rules of a game of classroom logic than a prognosis of real events in the real world, end quote. Representative Porter Hardy Jr. provided a similar assessment during an appropriations hearing in May 1968. He said, quote, my best information is that there are no significant military inputs to these analyses, end quote. John Boyd, hero of the lightweight fighter program, 
also struggled with systems analysis approach dominant in the DoD decision-making. Yet Boyd's experience reveals the subtleties of its implementation. When evaluating the designs of the FX project in 1966, Boyd criticized people and institutions who, quote, wormed their pet technologies into the final design, end quote. Instead of valid technical features emerging from the requirements, Boyd found that the FX requirements were altered to fit the desired technical features. John Boyd disapproved of the prevailing intuition of the bigger, higher, faster, farther aircraft. A speed of Mach 2.5 was only built into the FX requirements because a new technology emerged, variable geometry inlets, despite the fact that the technology entailed design penalties to maintenance, cost, and range. James Burton reported how Boyd believed that the technical features are the output from a disciplined design trade-off and not the input. His design philosophy at the time appears true to the deductive method and aligned with the intent, though perhaps not the practice, of systems analysis. Yet as Boyd came to discover, his actual process of learning was more like that described by Whitehead, an interaction between inductive and deductive approaches. Consider a sketch of Boyd's journey to the lightweight fighter. He first spent many years gaining experience as an actual fighter pilot. Then, he classified all his observed air combat maneuvers in aerial attack study. Boyd's schemata were so thorough that no major additions have been identified. Having so matched his classification system with experience, he then wondered what tied the maneuver-counter-maneuver strategies together. By studying engineering at Georgia Tech, a broadened experience led Boyd to useful real-world concepts of entropy. He then applied the concepts back to air combat scenarios with energy maneuverability theory, or EM theory. The FX design provided Boyd his first opportunity to apply EM theory to evaluate aircraft design. However, to deduce proper technical evaluations from EM theory, it first took several rounds of induction and deduction to build up to the EM theory concept. Concepts so aligned with reality do not arise from pure thinking alone or axiomatic truths, such as more speed is better. The inductive-deductive cycle continued when inadequacies of EM theory were demonstrated during the fly-off competition between the YF-16 and YF-17 prototypes in 1974. While both planes were predicted on paper to have similar maneuverability, pilots gave distinct advantage to the YF-16. EM theory certainly improved fighter aircraft evaluation, but it was not yet a map of reality. It called for the structuring of an improved concept. Boyd, however, had moved on. Weary of the politics surrounding aircraft development, Boyd looked instead to apply his maneuverability concepts to a more general topic, including learning, human organizations, and war. For the previous few years, Boyd was keenly interested in a range of subjects, including epistemological debates on the theory of knowledge by luminaries such as Karl Popper, Michael Pogliani, and Thomas Kuhn. As debates raged in 1975 over whether the Air Force would inventory the F-16 and the A-10, Boyd resigned his post. 
The next year, John Boyd released a short paper entitled Destruction and Creation, which described the concepts that became the foundation of all his subsequent work in the military sciences. He provided a justification that an inductive and deductive cycle is not just desirable for model building, but an inevitable fact of life. Over the next two decades, Boyd refined and presented his ideas on maneuver warfare and the OODA loop. It will be shown how Boyd anticipated the interdisciplinary studies of complexity and nonlinear systems, which contribute substantially to our understanding of economic systems. Boyd's short 1976 paper, Destruction and Creation, will be used as an introduction to a broader shift in both the natural and social sciences towards thinking in terms of complex adaptive systems. In this chapter and the next, these ideas will be applied to defense acquisition. Boyd went after a big idea in the paper, a general theory of how we create mental concepts that allows us to adapt to a changing environment and improve our capacity for independent action. The ability to generate mental concepts and use them to decide upon real-world actions is indeed what sets humans apart. For example, Schrodinger's equation is an articulation of quantum mechanical concepts which became usefully applied to our understanding of technologies such as computers, GPS, and lasers. The relevance of technology to our survival needs no elaboration. We can say that survival depends on adaptation, which, in the human world, need not take place in our genes, but in our minds. Human adaptation in the world depends on decision-making about technologies in the broadest sense, an activity dependent upon underlying mental concepts. Boyd wondered, quote, how do we generate or create mental concepts to support this decision-making activity, end quote. The question also underpins systems analysis, where military survival necessitates decisions concerning the direction of technological progress. Mental concepts frame the assumptions about technologies and requirements, which decide the course of resource investment. Boyd then described the inductive and deductive approaches for building mental concepts introduced above. Now, keeping these two opposing idea chains in mind, one from the specific to the general and the other from the general to the specific, Boyd likened deduction to the destruction of a domain or concept into its many parts and likened induction to the constructive process of reconstituting the parts into new domains or new concepts. So long as the reconstitution does not create the exact same relations among the parts, indicating creativity, new and different concepts have emerged. After many iterations of destructive deduction and creative induction, Boyd imagines how we may create a powerful concept. It may match up with reality so well that there is no further appeal to expand, complete, or modify the concept. The only way to improve the concept's explanatory power is an inward-oriented effort to make increasingly subtle observations. Boyd suspected at some point anomalies or inconsistencies will appear from the inward-oriented application of deduction and induction. More subtle observations provide the fodder for creatively synthesizing different and potentially more powerful concepts. Boyd quickly introduced the idea of an ultimate concept requiring no further expansion or modification before he quickly cuts it down. 
No concept, he claimed, can so completely describe the real world that we can consistently explain all observations. Boyd stated that, quote, we should anticipate a mismatch between observed phenomena and concept description of that observation, end quote. As we shall see, the idea is important for human organization, whether military, economic, or otherwise, because it implies the limits of planning. No centralized office can hold a complete concept, which can be used to calculate optimal courses of action in all cases. Boyd supports the claim by integrating three notions. Gödel's incompleteness theorems, Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, and the second law of thermodynamics, or entropy. Before elucidating the three notions and interpreting their relevance, an epistemological background will be provided, one that Boyd was familiar with in his readings. Though most histories must start before the beginning, this brief overview will start with Isaac Newton, who, in 1687, published Principia Mathematica. He found quantitatively precise laws of nature in classical mechanics and the inverse square rule of gravity. If a consistent and complete description of nature can be derived from a finite set of quantitative laws, the logical conclusion is scientific determinism. Pierre-Simon Laplace conjectured that if all the positions and all the velocities of all particles in the universe could be known, then the laws of nature will allow a vast enough intellect to calculate all past and future states of the universe. Free will, then, must have been an illusion. By the end of the 19th century, many scientists believed that they were reaching a complete description of natural laws, and they could theoretically describe and predict all aspects of our empirical world. As related in earlier chapters, the vaunted success of natural laws in prediction eventually inspired the German historical school and the American progressive movement. The scientific revolution was reflected in business organization and public policy under the banner of rational management. This positivist school also provides a compelling philosophical rationale for weapon systems analysis. If a systems analyst knew all the laws of physics, he could derive all feasible engineering arrangements. The optimal course could then be chosen based on the military requirements involved. Technical solutions need not be derived from the crude and wasteful empirical method of trial and error. All solutions could be calculated from natural laws, underlining elementary parts. Moreover, the solutions can be validated or refuted by independent third parties. If our knowledge of natural laws were complete, Literally every technology the future may hold can be planned for today, even if it couldn't practically be accomplished. As a result, a small number of the brightest people, those with the best grasp of the natural laws, could sit in the Pentagon and steer the course of defense technology. As an added benefit, holistic as opposed to parochial requirements will balance the equations. The process provides a logical basis for weapons choice. It cannot be refuted without challenging the requirements or, what might seem outrageous, the laws of physics. Systems analysis becomes a far humbler endeavor, however, if it turned out that models of natural laws were either incomplete, they cannot determine all feasible technologies, or inconsistent, they may wrongly assess technical feasibility. For Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, Natural laws such as Newton's inverse square rule for gravity 
were not a window into the real world or things in themselves. Instead, our understanding of natural laws structures the way things or phenomena appear to us. The reason mathematics is so effectively applied to our world, such as Newton's laws of gravity, is because our perception of the world has been structured by that mathematics. Our minds are hardwired with geometry and arithmetic, so when we look at the world and order our surroundings, Kant argued that it is already structured spatially or geometrically and temporally or arithmetically. We cannot experience a world that does not conform to our own geometry and arithmetic. Mathematics, in a sense, is the language in which we interact with the world of phenomena. Different geometries and different arithmetics can correspond to different ways of structuring the world around us. Curiously enough, Kant believed that Euclidean geometry of flat planes was the last word on geometry. Yet when Carl Gauss and others dropped the parallel lines axiom, a non-Euclidean geometry of curved space was created. The concept proved crucial to Albert Einstein's formulation of relativity, in which it was discovered that the structure of space and time is in fact curved. Mathematics for Kant was not the truth, or a line of communication to Plato's world of forms. Humans brought mathematics into the world, and it structures our view of phenomena. For Einstein, it provided the mental lens in 1919 to see light bending due to the curvature of space-time. Kant sent the agenda for later debates on epistemology. Bertrand Russell observed that, quote, Kant's inconsistencies were such as to make it inevitable that philosophers who were influenced by him should develop rapidly either in the empirical or in the absolute deductive directions. In fact, Russell himself and fellow mathematician Gottlob Frege were convinced earlier in their careers that Kant was wrong. They believed that mathematical truths were not of our own making. The question they wanted to resolve was whether people discovered mathematics or invented it, with implications for whether it was objectively true or not. Frege set out to put mathematics on a logical foundation by proving that set theory really belonged to logicism. Bertrand Russell recognized a paradox which presented a serious challenge to Frege's work. He sought to put mathematics into a logical form without encountering the vagaries and paradoxes of language. Language that is rich enough to talk about itself, however, encounters inconsistencies such as the liar paradox. For example, the statement, This statement is false, is neither true nor false. If it were true, then the statement is false, and vice versa. The liar paradox problem turned out not to be limited to language. Russell and others showed how the same problem fell into mathematics as well. Starting in 1900, David Hilbert, one of the most famous mathematicians of his day, sought to put mathematics on a solid axiomatic footing from which all propositions can be proven either true or false. Of 23 problems identified, two are problems about what can be proved by mathematics. They can be summarized into three questions. First, is mathematics consistent or does it prove only true statements? Second, is it complete? It proves all true statements. And third, is it decidable? Is there a definite procedure for every statement with results in finite time? Hilbert's program was crucial not just to mathematics, 
but for logical positivism, which viewed physics, and by extension all of the sciences, as an application of mathematics. With a definite procedure for correctly proving all true statements, mathematics and the sciences could then move towards finality. But if mathematics were inconsistent, incomplete, and or undecidable, then it cannot be a fountain of discovery for all scientific truths. Such a result would also destroy the framework used by elements in the Department of Defense, who went headlong first into unification and then into systems analysis and program budgeting. Hilbert's program was thoroughly dashed in 1931 by a young man named Kurt Gödel. In essence, he demonstrably proved using arithmetic that arithmetic itself was either incomplete or inconsistent. Later, Alan Turing proved it was undecidable. Gödel accomplished this feat, the first major result in logic since Aristotle, by generating a situation similar to the liar paradox. The analogous statement Gödel mathematically employed was, this statement is unprovable. If it is proved, the system is inconsistent. Otherwise, the system is incomplete. To make a self-referential statement mathematically, Gödel cleverly invented a way for mathematics to talk about itself. He imagined an enumerator that would codify every arithmetical function into a unique code number. The following will illustrate Gödel's proof, but see the paper for a lot more detail to go with it. Imagine listing the code of every computer program possible in order of code length. Short programs correspond to simple tasks and are placed high on the list. Other long programs will execute complex tasks and would be low on the list. Many programs would amount to gibberish with no practical value, but still, they're ordered on the list. The point is that every single computer program, representing every mathematical function, is fully enumerated in this list and ordered by their length. Let's assume that from the list, we can collect the set of all computable programs or functions that take any positive integer and then spit out an output where the output is either 1 or 0. In other words, it is true or false. So, for example, if you input the number 5, the first computable function spits out a 1 or a 0, then the second function spits out a 1 or a 0, and we list every possible function that exists. We now have a set of all computable functions, it seems to be complete, and for any input that we put into it, it can derive whether it is true or not. It appears consistent. Here's where the self-referencing comes into play. Let's define a new function, which is 1 minus the output of any given function. So if we input the number 5 into our first function and it returns a 0, then our new function is 1 minus 0, which is equal to 1. Briefly, we have shown that our new function provides a valid output of 1 or 0, again, true or false, and certainly it is a computable function. But recognize that we already listed every computable function, and this new function and output cannot be found anywhere in our enumerated set. We have created a statement which we can recognize to be valid, but it cannot be derived within the standard axioms of set theory. Not all true statements are provable in the system because we have enumerated the entire system, and still, 
we cannot find the answer. This is Gödel's first incompleteness theorem. Any consistent formal system within which a certain amount of elementary arithmetic can be carried out is incomplete. Gödel then went further to his second theorem. The consistency of any consistent system cannot be proved within the system itself. As John Boyd explained in Destruction and Creation, quote, Such a result does not imply that it is impossible to prove the consistency of a system. It only means that such a proof cannot be accomplished inside the system itself. As a matter of fact, Gödel and others have shown that a consistency proof of arithmetic can be found by appealing to systems outside that arithmetic. Thus, Gödel's proof indirectly shows that in order to determine the consistency of any new system, we must construct or uncover another system beyond it. Over and over, this cycle must be repeated to determine the consistency of more and more elaborate systems. End quote. Indeed, consistency and completeness at one level of mathematics can be proved by appealing to higher level of mathematics, so long as the former is a strict subset of the latter. The reason, in a nutshell, is that if you have problems emanating from self-referencing statements, uncovering a more powerful system again fixes your point of reference. You cannot observe your own system from the inside. Such a problem occurs when you think about thinking. It also occurs when you take the system's analysis approach. The analyst's formal model requires talking about itself, talking about sets of technologies and missions and requirements, where each member has quantifiable attributes that can be related. In jargon, it requires second-order logic such as found in the statement, every set of requirements has an optimal technical solution, whereas first-order logic is found in the statement, every requirement has a technical solution. It is worthy to note that Gensen only proved the consistency and completeness of arithmetic in full for first-order logic, not second-order logic. Yet systems analysts care about finding better or best decisions, not just any valid decision. It requires self-referential statements as to what is best for national security. As we observe, Sometimes the answer to defense questions are found by appealing to a larger system or national policy and geopolitical objectives. If valid, it follows that when we interact with a larger and more powerful system, namely the universe, we will inevitably find surprise and novelty. This does not mean that we can never completely describe all the laws of nature, Rather, we cannot predict all phenomena emanating from the laws of nature in a well-defined system. In mathematics, the problem arises when statements cannot be proved from the axioms. It could be a result of Gödel's incompleteness, or it could be that we have not been clever enough to derive a proof from the known axioms. In order to test natural theories, we must understand the dynamics of elementary particles. Otherwise, our predictions would be lacking a major ingredient of causality. To test alternative conjectures and discover which ones yield accurate predictions, we must gather information on initial conditions. This requires us to make increasingly precise observations. However, we cannot make arbitrarily precise predictions at very small scales 
without first refuting Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which, briefly, finds that information on initial conditions cannot exist regardless of the precision of our measurements. Only a statistical description of possible futures can be made. Gödel and Heisenberg imply indeterminacy is built into our mental and physical worlds. Werner Heisenberg's 1927 results have enjoyed a long history of successful replication. It has been tested across a wide range of application without contradiction. As Boyd explained, we cannot simultaneously fix or determine precisely the velocity and the position of a particle or a body. Examination of Heisenberg's principle reveals that as a mass becomes exceedingly small, the uncertainty or indeterminacy becomes exceedingly large. In other words, even if there existed an intellect vast enough to compute all past and future states of the universe, it could never collect the initial conditions on position and velocity for even a single particle with which to make that computation. If it wanted to know the position of a particle with arbitrary accuracy, then, by Heisenberg, the intellect could no longer know the precise velocity, and vice versa. Both values are simultaneously required to make point predictions of the particle's future. One common analogy is to consider a table of rows and columns. Finding what row a particular value is in tells us nothing about what column it is in. If we move up the table to discover the column header, we lose track of the value's row. Like Heisenberg, Boyd attributed the effect to the influence of an observer. When we attempt to measure an electron by a microscope, the accuracy is limited by the wavelength of the light employed. As we shorten the wavelength to more precisely determine the position of the electron, we are also increasing the energy of the light which disturbs the electron. Heisenberg described the consequence from the effect called Compton scattering. When we ask the question of position, the electron scatters and we lose the ability to simultaneously ask the precise questions of velocity. Heisenberg originally suggested that the electron really does have a definite position and velocity, but we run into a practical problem of measuring that fact because we disturb the system with our measurement. In short, we are ignorant of reality. Though Heisenberg later abandoned the deterministic view, it was later retained by Bohmian mechanics, which found that a particle has a precise position at all moments. However, particle velocities, and therefore trajectories, are determined by a pilot wave whose value depends simultaneously on all other particles. They share a universal wave. Any quantum experiment in a closed system must include the observing apparatus whose pilot wave interacts with the observed phenomena. A bit more technically, if the phenomena were decoupled from the apparatus, then the phenomena would be guided by a pilot wave with a definite velocity that obeys Schrodinger's linear equations, and therefore it is predictable. When we place an apparatus into the phenomena's closed system, creating the larger system of the apparatus plus the phenomena, the particle's pilot wave is conditional on the pilot wave of the apparatus. In other words, when we attempt to observe the particle's position, our presence influences the particle's velocity described by the pilot wave. 
because our observing apparatus cannot measure itself, we cannot predict the deterministic path of the particle. In Bohmian mechanics, when we attempt to more precisely measure the position, our apparatus becomes increasingly important part of the combined system, the apparatus plus the phenomena, and affects the particle's velocity. If we accept that Heisenberg's principle implicitly depends on the indeterminate presence and influence of an observer, Boyd argued that the magnitude of the uncertainty values represent the degree of intrusion by the observer upon the observed. We return to the self-referencing problem found in Gödel. To measure a closed quantum system, we must also measure our experimental apparatus creating a larger system. But we can never look into this larger system undisturbed from the outside. Heisenberg himself did not subscribe to Bohmian mechanics, and instead, along with Niels Bohr, founded the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. However, in both the Copenhagen and Bohmian views, the observer is invoked and intrudes upon complementary aspects of the observed, therefore affecting its future. Physicist Steven Weinberg commented that, quote, As much as we would like to take a unified view of nature, we keep encountering the stubborn duality in the role of the intelligent life in the universe as both subject and student, end quote. Regardless of interpretation, uncertainty emerges and reduces any predictions one can make about future states into probabilities. The more precise we want to measure a particle's position, the less we can know about its velocity. Without both values, we cannot precisely predict the particle's future, which would otherwise be fully determined by Schrodinger's equations. One example where we only have statistical knowledge is radioactive decay. If we had 20 grams of a radioactive element, and the half-life is one year, then we can predict that 10 grams will decay in the first year, 5 grams will decay in the next, and so forth. However, we cannot say whether an individual atom will decay or not. In the example, it has a 50% likelihood in each year. Indeed, the randomness is genuine for radioactive decay in the sense that the information about it cannot be compressed. Uncertainty implies randomness in physics which is axiomatic in the Copenhagen view and a result of our ignorance in the Bohmian. Still, a probabilistic, as opposed to a deterministic view, of quantum objects has proven highly accurate and useful for describing ensemble behavior. This break between our uncertain descriptions at the individual level and our accurate predictions at the ensemble level is significant. Humans are indeed ensembles of quantum objects where uncertainty is either minimal or averaged out. It is precisely when we are not observing and intruding at the individual level that quantum objects act predictably at the statistical level. The act of observation creates uncertainty in our description at the individual level and prevents us from evaluating the matchup between our concept and reality. We cannot predict which atom will decay at a given rate or which photon will reflect at a given angle. But we can predict what proportion of atoms will have decayed and what proportion of photons will have reflected. Boyd concluded his section on Heisenberg by remarking on the self-referentiality of the quantum situation. Quote, When intrusion is total, that is, 
when the intended distinction between observer and observed essentially disappears, the uncertainty values indicate erratic behavior. When intrusion is low, the uncertainty values do not hide or mask observed phenomena, nor indicate significant erratic behavior. In other words, the uncertainty values not only represent the degree of intrusion by the observer upon the observed, but also the degree of confusion and disorder perceived by that observer, end quote. Boyd related the confusion and disorder perceived by the observer when making point predictions to entropy and the second law of thermodynamics. Entropy is a unique aspect of natural law because it points to an arrow of time. By contrast, all physical descriptions are time-reversible in the quantum, classical, and relativistic theories. In other words, the equations work the same way forwards into the future as they do backwards into the past. Time-reversible theories leave no room for confusion. We can calculate all past and future states of the system. Entropy, on the other hand, is an irreversible process. Unlike quantum mechanics or relativity, entropy corresponds with many of the experiences we have in our daily lives. For example, when we add milk to coffee, it evenly mixes and never spontaneously separates. In this case, and many others, we can see an irreversible process where the past is fundamentally different than the future. A closed system goes from a well-ordered state to a disorganized, messy state. For another example, when we boil water, we are putting energy into the system and it gains potential for doing work, like cooking pasta or generating steam for turbines. The tumultuous boiling of the water may appear disorganized, but is really generating complex order in the form of convection. If we leave the system alone, the water disperses heat into the environment, not the other way. We never expect water at room temperature to spontaneously draw heat from the air and start boiling. Closed systems evolve irreversibly from an ordered state towards disorder from a state with capacity for doing work to one where work cannot be drawn out of it without putting in energy. Closed systems always evolve towards higher entropy, like our disorienting attempt to more precisely match consistent but necessarily incomplete concept descriptions with the real-world observations. The confusion and disorder caused by Heisenberg's uncertainty principle is indeed related to entropy. Both our descriptions of quantum systems and entropy are necessarily statistical. A closed system of particles moving about has many more ways to find itself disordered than ordered. From this, we may expect our world to inevitably move towards more disorder and lifelessness, but that is not what we observe. Indeed, the Earth continuously draws energy from the sun, which animates the weather and brings organic life to the ecosystems. Boyd recognized that the only way to overcome entropy, to generate negative entropy, is to import order from another system that is larger and better organized. Boyd reasoned that, quote, From this law, it follows that entropy must increase in any closed system or for that matter, any system that cannot communicate in an ordered fashion with some other systems or environments external to itself, end quote. For Boyd's system of building concepts and matching them to reality, 
This means importing order from a stronger concept that can make sense of unexplained facts. We cannot work within one static objective view of reality. Boyd put it all together. Quote, What an interesting result! According to Gödel, we cannot, in general, determine the consistency, hence the character or nature, of an abstract system within itself. According to Heisenberg and the second law of thermodynamics, any attempt to do so in the real world will, ex- will expose uncertainty and generate disorder. Taken together, these three notions support the idea that any inward-oriented and continued effort to improve the matchup of concept with observed reality will only increase the degree of mismatch. End quote. Boyd viewed the increasing disorder within a closed system as a control mechanism that excites us into creatively building new and more powerful concepts. The cycle endlessly drives towards ever more complex concepts and actions. For Boyd, the human mind effectively combats the increase in entropy. Though Boyd stopped here in destruction and creation, he continued to expand his ideas over the next two decades to better describe negative entropy systems. He later wrote how, quote, Living systems are open systems. Closed systems are non-living systems. End quote. As an open system, the human mind creates new concepts and negative entropy. Julian Simon later recognized how the human mind is the ultimate resource. Yet the physical brain is itself a highly ordered system, the product of evolution. Concept building, as an output of the brain, must result from completely natural processes of negative entropy. The human mind is also part of the human body, which continually draws energy from the environment and disperses entropy back into the environment. Erwin Schrödinger found that all life feeds on negative entropy. Living systems do not violate the second law of thermodynamics because even though they generate pockets of negative entropy, they export more entropy into the environment consistent with the increase in overall entropy. Negative entropy systems openly interact with their environment but remain self-bounded and self-perpetuating. The process of generating complex order in the natural world was pioneered by Ilya Prigogine, who developed the theory of dissipative structures. Entropy has generally been associated with waste in an otherwise reversible process. For example, the entropy associated with friction causes a pendulum's swinging motion to stop. Prigogine, however, showed that open systems can generate negative entropy and indeed self-organization when two conditions prevail. First, the ordering process of negative entropy can occur when large amounts of energy or matter flow through the system. The system gains order at the expense of its environment, in which overall entropy increases. Second, circular feedback loops, where the system's inputs reference its own outputs, sparks sudden bifurcations which keep systems coherent and stable. The bifurcations create a place for irreversibility and the arrow of time. Feedback mechanisms lead to nonlinear effects, allowing systems to self-organize when far from equilibrium. We will dive just a bit deeper into the nature of bifurcations and how they make nonlinear systems unpredictable before re-emerging to contrast the ideas of self-organization 
with the ideas of predictable control from logical positivists. Linearity allows us to predict the long-term future and past because we do not encounter bifurcations where the system chooses among valid states. Linear systems and reversible processes tend to be idealizations, such as the frictionless pendulum. By contrast, nonlinear systems have several stable states. When a nonlinear system reaches a bifurcation point, we reach an irreversible process where the choice of state can only be described statistically. The real world regularly exhibits nonlinearity. One crucial aspect of nonlinear systems is that in most cases, they cannot be solved for. This was discovered by polymath Jules-Henri Poincaré, who found that long-term predictions cannot be made, even in fully deterministic systems, so long as nonlinearities prevail. Poincaré took Newton's famous equation for gravity and confirmed that, indeed, the long-term future of a two-body system can be fully predicted with arbitrary accuracy using Newton's equations. However, when the influence of a third body is introduced, the system is no longer stable in most cases, and long-term predictions cannot be made. The system becomes chaotic. Many futures are possible. Similarly, you cannot unwind the system back into its history. Several histories could have resulted in the present state of the system. Closed-form solutions require that the solution is integrable for all system states. Yet resonance can lead to unbounded motion, infinities in phase space, which make them non-integrable. We cannot predict the future or past states of systems when they encounter resonance. As time continues, one of our three erratic bodies in the three-body problem will be ejected from the system due to resonance. We are left with a stable two-body system. And from this stable system, we cannot determine that its previous states had included three bodies. We arrived at an irreversible process. The resonant features of dynamical systems is what makes them non-integrable, and thus defines them as non-linear. In short, resonance introduces outsized reactions and uncertainty to otherwise deterministic systems. We can have an illustration of resonance and non-locality. Suppose we hang weights at varying lengths from a common string. If we pull one of the weights and let it act as a pendulum, the other weights of similar length, corresponding to a particular frequency, will start swinging in sympathy. Other weights whose string length is a rational multiple will also resonate and swing as well, but not as strongly as in the one-to-one -one case of the same length of string. If you'd like a more full-length description of the three-body problem, bifurcations, and non-linearity, please see the full paper which provides additional instructions. By now, we have fully dismantled the reductionist view of logical positivism. Gödel proved that any logical system consistent with the real world is incomplete. There will be phenomena we cannot explain or predict using a unified system. When we try to ascertain whether any particular unpredictable fact is due to our ignorance rather than girdle incompleteness, 
we run into Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. We are limited in the precision with which we can gather the positions and velocities necessary to make predictions at the individual level. We can only make statistical predictions. Quite separately from Heisenberg's uncertainty, we have nonlinear systems in which we cannot make point predictions even when we know the initial conditions with infinite precision. Resonance leads to non-integrability of most real-world systems because it destroys trajectory descriptions, and by doing so, it introduces irreversible processes associated with entropy. When more energy flows through a nonlinear system, moving it further away from equilibrium, resonances cause increasingly frequent bifurcations. Bifurcations in nature can be interpreted as a manifestation of the system's effort to maintain itself, moving it towards new behaviors to export entropy at ever faster rates. From bifurcations, we get turbulence, oscillating chemical reactions, and the seeds of life. Consider one example relevant to defense decision-making. Turbulence is onset by resonance and bifurcations rather than a steady buildup of competing frequencies. Knowledge gained about turbulence is special, not universal. Information on the turbulence forming around the wing of a Boeing 707 has no relevance for an F-16 fighter. If the three-body problem is worse than hard, then real systems on the order of 10 to the 23rd particles are impossible. They require trial and error rather than predictions, regardless of computing power. Richard Feynman wondered, quote, Why should it take an infinite amount of logic to figure out what happens to one tiny piece of space and time and what it is doing? End quote. Though the future cannot be fully predicted, we know that when matter is moved far from equilibrium, it takes on new statistical properties. It can move towards higher states of negative entropy. We may now speak of self-organizing behaviors that adapt to the environment. While working on destruction and creation in 1976, John Boyd did not know how the revolution in complexity would unfold. Ilya Prigogine's work on dissipative structures hadn't yet earned him a Nobel Prize. The Santa Fe Institute for Complexity Studies had not yet been founded. Despite evidence to the contrary, most scientists still view biological organizations as the outcome of central direction rather than the unintended result of collective phenomena. Thinking had it that founder cells directed other cellular functions. Similarly, the queen ant was still thought to direct many of the detailed activities of the ant colony. Across many disciplines, discoveries slowly chipped away at the core of the reductionist view represented by logical positivism. Systems cannot be fully understood through analysis. The future cannot be precisely predicted. Equilibrium conditions in linear systems are not of interest in the real world. John Boyd grasped from an early on the importance of negative entropy systems, those that learn and adapt to a changing environment, and followed the scientific developments around those ideas. These ideas coalesced around complex adaptive systems theory, 
It has no relation whatsoever to the RAND method of systems analysis. Boyd continued to draw from a wide range of complexity studies until his death in 1996, as Franz Osinga thoroughly documented in Science, Strategy, and War, the strategic theory of John Boyd. Though complex adaptive systems has become an umbrella term for a diverse range of research, we can briefly introduce it by contrasting it to the so-called complicated systems. Complicated systems are generally man-made objects like tanks, airplanes, and satellites. They are made up of many parts, each of which may follow a complicated set of rules. If we study the characteristics of each part, we can fully describe the system. We can predict precisely how the complicated system will act under most circumstances. An important aspect to complicated systems is that their functioning abruptly stops when we remove random parts. The lesson was hard learned after the failure of a single component caused the Space Shuttle Challenger to crash in 1986. While complicated systems are fragile and at best robust to shocks, they can still adapt. For example, the fly-by-wire system on the F-16 makes instantaneous adjustments to stabilize the aircraft. However, complicated systems are only adaptive to the extent that the range of possible environments and responses are enumerated. They cannot adapt to unforeseen circumstances. By contrast, complex adaptive systems are generally natural objects like the brain, ant colonies, and social networks. They are made up of many relatively simple parts working in parallel whose nonlinear interactions create novel system behaviors. Studying individual parts cannot provide us an understanding of complex system behaviors. When random parts are removed from complex systems, they continue to function. Performance degrades slowly as more and more parts are removed because of redundant causal pathways allowing for adaptation to new or unforeseen environments. Complex systems are not only robust to external shocks or far from equilibrium conditions, but can benefit from those shocks. Internal feedback loops create novel behaviors required for complex systems to maintain themselves under unexpected conditions. Such environmental perturbations would quickly destroy a complicated system. Matters of self-reference have been highlighted because of its asymmetric role in inductive and deductive systems. For deductive systems, self-referential feedback creates destructive limitations shown in the Russell Paradox and Girdle Incompleteness, elaborated on by Alan Turing with his halting problem for computers. Attempts to apply a consistent logical system to the real world also encounter problems of prediction and measurement. Initial conditions cannot be known with infinite precision, due, in one way or another, to the self-referential presence of an observer. We need multiple frames of reference, or mental models, simultaneously. To avoid increasing disorientation, the observer must remain satisfied with statistical descriptions. For inductive systems, on the other hand, the observer is part of the system rather than distinct from it. The observer cannot isolate the subject from their shared context to gain a controlled understanding of its function. 
all the system's parts act and react to one another and the environment through resonant phenomena. Resonance is a form of feedback which creates nonlinearities and irreversible processes that can only be described statistically. As the system moves further away from equilibrium, bifurcations are points where the system either evolves or dies. Feedback loops allow simple elements of matter to effectively coordinate by reacting to their neighbors rather than waiting for orders from above. Here, we see the creativity of bottoms-up inductive processes. Feedback loops play an important role in the self-organization of complex systems. Positive feedback, like resonance, propels the system forward. It is an essential attribute of Prigogine's concept for dissipative structures, providing the context for bifurcations. Outputs are routed to inputs, creating an iterative and self-reinforcing process. Feedback loops act along three general channels. First, as already discussed, outputs are routed to inputs in an iterative loop represented by exponential functions. Second, the macro scale affects the micro scale in a process called downward causation. Here, we recognize that systems are hierarchical, they have integrative levels, such as a society being composed of people. In fact, the word society has no meaning for a person in isolation. Integrative levels continue from people to organs, then to tissues, cells, and so forth. Reductionist accounts only see upward causality, that all system behaviors can be described by attributes of the most basic parts. A holistic view finds that higher levels of the system affect and are affected by lower level constituents. For example, societies constrain the actions and attitudes of the people as much as the people contribute to societal behaviors. Similarly, the atomic structure downwardly affects the valence conditions of its electrons. A third channel of feedback is backwards causation where considerations about the future affect the present. Backwards causation is most apparent in markets, where future expectations become embedded in today's price. The result may be a herd behavior of market bubbles and crashes, or regulating behavior of arbitrage and entrepreneurship. The system effects from each of the three feedback channels is nonlinear. Outputs are not proportional to inputs. Numerous feedback loops between decentralized parts help complex adaptive systems build resilience to environmental perturbations. The importance of feedback loops was recognized by Norbert Weiner and W. Ross Ashby in the study of cybernetics. As Weiner's 1948 book explained, cybernetics is the science of control and communication in the animal and the machine. Ashby argued that the internal regulation must have requisite variety of mechanisms to deal with environments characterized by continual flow and change. As environmental challenges grow, the system needs to achieve a larger number of stable states to cope. Such variety requires a large number of parts and numerous paths of communication. Naturally, with resilience comes inefficiencies associated with maintenance of the spare parts and an idle feedback loop. 
These were precisely the critiques levied by efficiency experts. Yet what they neglect is the necessity of seemingly inefficient duplication. As Nassim Taleb claimed, quote, redundancy equals insurance. The organism with the largest number of secondary uses is the one that will gain the most from environmental randomness and epistemic opacity, end quote. Nearly all complex organizations in nature have foundations in relatively simple and decentralized elements, but due to their nonlinear interactions, create stable emergent patterns. They build up from the bottom, shaped by continuous environmental feedback. The fact is equally true for economic marketplaces, which result from human interaction, but not from human design. For a system to generate complexity, the parts must coordinate in a way that is beyond the information available to any individual part. Biological cells specialize based on what their neighbors are doing, but they end up with a functioning organism. A single ant can never assess the global situation of its colony, but by following the pheromones of its neighbors, the colony thrives in a coordinated way. No single model can direct a nation's resources to the highest and most valued uses. Economic progress results from many individuals making separate plans and coordinating after the fact using the price mechanism. The theme is that systems generate complexity when relatively simple parts coordinate using local information only. They do not have order imposed on them independent of emergent properties. Perhaps unintuitively, simple systems give rise to complex behavior, whereas complex systems give rise to simple behavior. This is because nonlinearities create emergent properties that cannot be predicted. On the other hand, predictability of response is often desirable for complicated systems like tanks, airplanes, and satellites. We might not want to negotiate and train with an airplane as it learns its environment just yet. We can identify and program most airspace conditions, though perhaps this may be changing with artificial intelligence and machine learning. That being said, information on future technologies and environments cannot be held in one place. It is dispersed across all the people and institutions that engage in the larger economic process. We should almost certainly want our larger system of technology development, production, sustainment, and disposal to exhibit complex adaptive behaviors associated with bottom-up processes. The defense acquisition system is an abstract order unlike the tanks, airplanes, and satellites that emerge from its functioning. Researchers Breibacher, Nicholas, and Schuster summarize the viewpoint. Quote, The maintenance of organization in nature is not and cannot be achieved by central management. Order can only be maintained by self-organization. Self-organizing systems allow adaptation to prevailing environments. We want to point out the superiority of the self-organizing system over conventional human technology, which carefully avoids complexity and hierarchically manages nearly all technical processes. End quote. The purpose of this chapter has been to explain how complex order in the real world emerges from simple and iterative systems of nonlinear interactions. 
The umbrella term of complex adaptive systems is used to describe self-organizing systems of emergent order that adapt to an uncertain environment. While these properties are not in general desirable for weapon systems that humans use in the field, they are certainly desirable properties for the defense acquisition system as much as they are for market economies. Sustained technological progress cannot occur outside of a complex adaptive system. An analysis of quantitative natural laws cannot provide perfect foresight as to the proper technological arrangements. No definite procedure can adapt to the unforeseen events bound to happen in the real world. Adaptation requires a different process of creativity and surprise resulting from new information. The core concepts of complex adaptive systems were integrated into John Boyd's theories of human organization, leading him away from attrition warfare epitomized in World War I towards an idea of irregular maneuver warfare. Boyd found many predecessors of this form of thinking, from Sun Tzu to Clausewitz and Liddell Hart, many others indeed. Strategic thinkers like Hans Delbruck and J.C. Wiley also investigated maneuver warfare. These philosophical trends towards thinking in terms of unpredictable, nonlinear systems coalesced into military doctrine in 1989 when Captain John Schmidt finished the capstone doctrinal publication for the U.S. Marine Corps, titled Warfighting. For example, Schmidt wrote how, quote, The very nature of war makes certainty impossible. All actions in war will be based on incomplete, inaccurate, or even contradictory information. While past battlefields could be described by linear formations and uninterrupted linear fronts, we cannot think of today's battlefield in linear terms. As a result, war is not governed by the actions or decisions of a single individual in any one place, but emerges from the collective behavior of all individual parts in the system interacting locally in response to local conditions and incomplete information. A military action is not the monolithic execution of a single decision by a single entity, but necessarily involves near-countless independent but interrelated decisions and actions being taken simultaneously throughout the organization. Efforts to fully centralize military operations and to exert complete control by a single decision maker are inconsistent with the intrinsically complex and distributed nature of war. End quote. While complexity theories have penetrated the philosophy of military operations, attempts to translate the ideas into acquisition policy have been few. Like combat, the development and deployment of technologies is an inherently uncertain and nonlinear process. Central direction by one or a small set of individual minds cannot generate the enormous complexity required for constant progress. The lesson was dramatically learned with the failure of socialist economies the world over. While apologists continue to dream of a computing machine that will prevail over seemingly chaotic and redundant coordination of the market economy, the impossibility of such a dream appears to be deeply built into the structure of our universe. The only realistic way to generate a system that exhibits complex behavior beyond the foresight of any individual 
is to build from the bottom up according to simple rules. Tacit coordination based on local conditions can then give rise to emergent order, a process not appreciated by advocates of top-down planning. Thanks for listening to this introduction to an acquisition talk series called Program to Fail, The Rise of Central Planning in Defense Acquisition 1945-1975. to Stay tuned as new episodes are released. For more information, or if you'd like to provide feedback to me, please visit acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again.